Have you ever thought, if only the message of Christianity were different, then I might be able to believe it. If only the message of Christianity were different, then I might share it a lot more often. The message of the Christian faith, what we will also call the gospel message, the good news, the message of the Christian faith cuts against the grain of modern values. And simply put, it makes it unappealing to the world. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning and you think if the gospel message made a bit more sense or it wasn't as weak, then I might believe it. Or perhaps you're a Christian and you think, I would share the gospel more if the message wasn't so offensive, if it wasn't so foolish. And perhaps as a Christian, you feel that much of your time is given trying to find ways to make the gospel a bit more appealing to those who need it. As I've studied this week, I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit that I so often lack boldness and courage in sharing the gospel. And a large part of that, I believe, is that I'm somehow desiring to avoid parts of this message that others are not going to agree with or others are not going to be offended by. And it leaves me doing what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, that he didn't do. He didn't come preaching the gospel message with wise and persuasive words. Or maybe you've thought more people would believe the gospel message. If only the influential would believe it. And many ministries have sought to aim after the most influential, believing that if the most influential believe in this message, then their platform will help others believe in it too. And while we certainly should seek to bring the gospel message to all, I'm not quite convinced that the right people believing this message would lead to more people believing this message. In a recent episode of Ask Pastor John, one listener asked John Piper, why doesn't God save all the worldly wise people to proclaim the gospel to the whole world? Wouldn't that have made a faster and greater impact in seeing the world come to faith? And so if you've thought about any of these questions that I've raised this morning, I just want you to know you are not alone. We today aren't the first people who have felt the temptation to be found acceptable by the world around us. In fact, Paul writes about these very matters in his letter to the Corinthian church. As we saw two weeks ago, this Corinthian church was not united. And that was an indication that the gospel message was not central. Because anytime the gospel message is central to a people, the people are united together. The Corinthians had placed a massive emphasis on style and preference of the preacher. An emphasis that was shaped by the Corinthian culture. But underneath those divisions of, I like this preacher, you like that preacher, lay a more serious fundamental problem. Namely, how they viewed and understood this gospel message. Paul ends the passage from two weeks ago in verse 17 saying this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. 
In our passage this morning, Paul seeks to further shatter this appeal of earthly wisdom, of earthly power and earthly eloquence that the Corinthians may have been feeling, and he shatters that by exploring God's design behind this message, the purpose for this message, and the goals in this message. And in the same way that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth to convince them, I too pray that we are convinced of the purposes of God as we see them in the foolish wisdom of the cross. And you say, wait, that doesn't make sense. Just chew on it. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you will see it makes no sense to the world. But biblically, it's true. And so let me pray once more before we jump in. God, we come to you and we beg you, help us. We are immersed in a world that's seeking for our adoption of their values. And so help us. Help us not be wise in the ways of the world, all the while losing our souls. And so use this passage to grow us in faith, to show us our hope that's in Christ Jesus, and to change us. And so I pray you would take the little bit that I have and do a lot with it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, three points. I think the first point is probably a little longer than the other two, which is apparently common. Three points that I trust will help us better understand the foolish wisdom of the cross that Paul is committed to proclaiming. First point, God's design for the foolish wisdom of the cross. God's design for the foolish wisdom of the cross. We see this in verses 18 through 25. So we're going to look at God's design. The passage that we just heard read, it begins this way, for, for. That three-letter word ties what he's about to say to the immediate statement that he made in verse 17. And this is where the chapters and the verses in our Bibles, they don't help us here. When Paul wrote this, Paul wasn't writing in chapters and verses. And verse 17 ends saying, not in cleverness of speech, not in cleverness of logos, word. The ESV renders it, not in words of eloquent wisdom. Paul says, I didn't come preaching in logos, words of eloquent wisdom. And I didn't do that so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. He then picks up in verse 18 and he says, For the word, logos of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. The logos, the word of cleverness. The word of eloquent wisdom is mutually exclusive to the word of the cross. And Paul sets up these two categories. And really, in setting up the two categories, the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross, he sets up two categories of people. Everyone would have thought that the two categories were Jews and Gentiles. But Paul sees the two categories as those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those who belong to the world and its ways are perishing. And those who are being saved, they've come to, they've come to see that their salvation is a result of the power of God. Those who are being saved. It's possible for us to read that and think, Paul's not very confident that they are saved. 
that they are being saved. It seems to lessen the degree of certainty with which he writes. But let's be clear, that's not what's happening. Those who are being saved is another example of Paul using different verb tenses, past, present, future, to speak of the same salvation. In his commentary, Paul Thistleton puts it this way. Think of a man being rescued from a sinking ship. When he is aboard the rescue boat, he has been saved. And while the rescue boat makes its way to shore, he is being saved. And as the rescue boat comes up on the shore, which he can see, he will be saved. Speaking of the same rescue, so too, Paul talking about one salvation in various tenses. And it's interesting that what stands in contrast to the power of God is not weakness, but rather folly, foolishness. To have God's power doesn't mean that you give up weakness. No, the way you get God's power is through weakness. To have God's power means you give up the wisdom of this world. And in giving up the wisdom of this world, you then look like a fool to the world. And that's the contrast. The power of God and the foolishness of the world. The wisdom of the world. When you hear worldly wisdom, you shouldn't think, okay, so is Paul telling me I have to check my intellect at the door and just believe whatever he says? As though I don't have a mind to think? No, Paul's not saying you have to give up your smarts and your mind. You're having to give up the way of life that doesn't have God at the center. When Paul says the word of the cross or the gospel message, he's referring to God's plan of graciously dealing with the sins of his people. How is it that the Bible tells us that God has graciously dealt with the sins of his people? Well, God the Son took on flesh. God the Son lived a perfect life. God the Son died for the sins of his people. God the Son was raised on the third day. And for any and all who repent and believe, Jew, Gentile, then you were justified through faith. Not in the work that you can do, but in the redeeming work that Christ has done. And Paul writes and he says, every time that message goes forth, you will hear it in one of two ways. And how you hear it depends on the group that you're in. If you're being saved, Paul says, then that message of the cross, of the gospel, will be glorious to you. Think about the songs that we've sung this morning. There's power in the blood. Victory in the Lamb. All my boast is in Jesus. We sing about the power of the cross, the Lamb that hangs. His life expired on the cross. And we sing those things as though they are victorious. The image of redemption, of being redeemed, once not a people, now a people. It's powerful and it's glorious. And Paul says, and yet on the other hand, if you hear that message and you are perishing, then that message is silly to you. It's foolishness to you. As Gordon Fee says in his commentary, a God who gets himself crucified by his enemies just doesn't come across as divine wisdom in this world. Moreover, he says, the idea that we're declared righteous before God by faith alone and not based on anything that we have done is so utterly contradictory to how mankind would design things. And because of that, it seems foolish to them. And that's the question. 
The question that emerges as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31, is why in the world would God design a salvation that was foolish? Why would he do that if he knew that it would seem so utterly foolish to the world and that many wouldn't even believe because of it? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. God's, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 29, the wisdom of the wise was the political shrewdness that his people showed. All human schemes that fail to take God into account will run aground. And so what Isaiah received from the Lord was a word to stand up, to stand up to the people of God who thought with Syria potentially coming, they thought, hey, we don't have to trust God. How about we make an alliance with, uh, an alliance with Egypt? And if we make an alliance with Egypt then Syria will be afraid to come and attack us because we'll be made stronger. And in worldly wisdom, it made sense. And yet it was their alliance with Egypt that they thought would bring them safety that so alarmed Syria that it sparked the invasion that they hoped to avoid. God's rescue strategy opts for what appears to be weakness in the situation. Jerusalem is besieged, they're crushed, and God in kindness will rescue it eventually. And so Paul quoting Isaiah 29 just reminds us, when God designed how he was going to save his people, through the hearing and the responding in faith to this message of a crucified and risen Savior, he did it knowing that it would be heard as foolishness to so many people. And let's be clear, this is not the case of, well, God just didn't see that far ahead. Man, if God could do a do-over, he would certainly change it to where this message that must have slipped his mind how foolish it would be. He would have changed it to where it would, it would have been wise in the way of the world. No, that's not what's happening. He designed the gospel message not to line up with the wisdom of the world because he had a goal to destroy the wisdom of the world. In a culture that values wisdom, the gospel comes and turns it upside down. And so if you're a Christian, can I just relieve you of pressure that I think many Christians, including myself, so often feel? When you share the gospel, when you preach the gospel, and you have an aim to make it non-offensive, and to make it go forth with eloquent speech, you are disarming the gospel message from its God-infused power. God intends the gospel to destroy the wisdom of this world by confronting it, not by appealing to it. To appeal to worldly wisdom empties the cross of the power to destroy that worldly wisdom that opposes God. And so, Christian, you are a messenger. You don't have to remove the foolishness of the message. In fact, God so designed it that way. And so give yourselves to faithfulness, to share the message not to creativity and to make it more acceptable to those you share with. And so Paul then turns to rhetorical questions in verse 20 to just continue making the point. He takes the who's who of their day, the wise man, the scribe, the debater in this age, 
And he says, okay, the ones that you esteem so highly, where are they in relation to salvation? I mean, he's just talked about what Christ has done in order to secure salvation. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He has defeated sin. It's as if Paul turns and says, so the ones that you put on a a pedestal, what have they done to defeat the devil and to destroy sin? Paul says, God has rendered useless human wisdom when it comes to the cross. One commentator says, God makes wisdom foolish by making foolishness, the preaching of the cross, into wisdom. God makes wisdom foolish by making foolishness, the preaching of the cross, into wisdom. And verse 21 continues, the world has not come to know God through its wisdom. And I love what Paul attributes that to. It's not to ineffective preachers. The reason that the world has not come to know God through their wisdom is because God so designed it that way. God designed for knowledge of him not to come through human strength. Gordon Fee, again, God knows that a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And if that's the God we have, that constitutes the creature worshiping the creature, not the creature worshiping their creator. And the gods of the wise, you should know this. The gods of the wise are seldom gracious to those that are not wise. They tend to make considerable demands on the ability of people who are not as good as them. Hence, the God of the wise oftentimes become God only for the wise. And God was wise enough to not let human wisdom be the key to knowing him. Because in the cross, he put all the divisions of man on the same level. Human wisdom looks at the way God acts and sees them as so perplexing that they think God would never do something like that. And it's the preaching of that message that is foolishness to those that are perishing. But it's how some are being saved. And so again, it's okay. It's okay if the gospel looks foolish to those who don't believe it. It's supposed to. You don't, that doesn't need to keep you from sharing the gospel. No, but, but rather share the gospel for the sake of upholding God's wisdom. Share the gospel for the sake of the, etern- the eternity of others. And share the gospel for the growth and godliness in yourself. As I think about the reasons I don't share the gospel, it's because I have fears that the gospel is meant to overcome. And so God has so rigged the Christian faith that even when I share the gospel, I'm preaching a message that I need to hear and receive so as to have my hesitations overcome. In our day, the cross is just simply not offensive. But in Jesus' day, the topic of the crucifixion wasn't even allowed in polite conversation settings. Verse 22 tells us that those who reject the cross believe that they have good reason for doing it. Paul writes and says, the Jews demand a sign. The Jews, those that were familiar with how God had delivered his people in the past. Oh, that mighty arm and that outstretched hand. God, you do that again and then we will believe. But notice who's in charge. 
not the God who acts. But the one demanding a sign is the assessor of God himself. And to those who demand the sign, it seems wise. But for you and I to talk about it and go, wait, the creature demands a sign from the creator? That's foolish. And so it's foolish for someone to say, if I'm going to believe, then God is going to need to do something. The burden of proof is not on God. There's also a premise of thinking that we are qualified judges. <laughs> the word of the cross tells us that there has already been a trial for God. And humanity has shown that they are terrible judges because they sent his son to the cross. They rejected him not because he was bad. They rejected him because he was good. They demanded a sign. Think about, think about what we hear. Matthew chapter 27, verse 42. Jesus hanging suspended. And listen to some of the Jews. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will then believe in him. They demanded the sign. Their sign was Christ. You come down, we see it, we'll believe it. They demanded, come off of the cross. The word of the cross was that he would stay on it. The Jews refused to believe that the cross revealed what they really deserved. And that's why Paul says, and so this thing that is so foolish to man... A savior hanging on a cross? That foolishness of God is wiser than all of man's wisdom. God's powerful king coming down from heaven in weakness and being crucified like a shameful commoner? That was a message that would have been reserved for the great fools of any city. And it's exactly that message that God has so seen fit to be the power that he works to bring about salvation. Uh, one of the first pictures of Jesus that we know of, it's called the Alexa, the Alexa Manus Graffito. Second century picture of Jesus drawn onto a Roman wall where Jesus is pictured as a donkey on a cross. He's got a, a human body and this donkey head. This man, with a silly expression on his face, raises his hand at the crucified donkey in, in the drawing. And the caption below reads, Alexa Manus, Alexa Mahanus worships his God. Alexa Mahanus, the Christian. Alexa Mahanus, the village idiot, worships God on a Roman cross. It was the most foolish of messages to culture's senses and sensibilities. And yet this is God's message to those of us who are being saved. Kids, that's why your parents get you up every week to come to this place with this people to hear this message. Visitors, this is the central message that you will hear week after week from this pulpit. And it's the very claim that you yourself must investigate. And Christians, this is why we gather. The crux of God's message to all of humanity is this seemingly weak message about Christ being crucified. And yet to those who are being saved, who realize I deserve the cross, they no longer demand to be judged. But they realize that God has sent Jesus to take their place. And in doing so, he's taken he's the topic of an unspeakable 
torture instrument and made it into an event that Christians celebrate week after week, day after day. The weakest thing God ever did is more powerful than all of humanity's wisdom. The weakest thing God did, hang on a cross, was strong enough to destroy the devil. All human strength and ingenuity has not, it cannot, and it will not destroy the devil. And so the whole message of the Christian faith is that the way up is down. The wisdom and power of God, it's not found by grasping for control, but by letting go and trusting in the one who has promised good for all who trust in him. It's not found at the top. It's found at the bottom. It's not found in exercising our efforts. It's found in receiving his mercy and his grace. It's not found by boasting in our successes. It's found by confessing our sins. It's not found in pursuing greatness. It's found in living in humility. God has decided not to be found in the wisdom, in the power, in the wealth, in the beauty, in the riches, in the success of this world. And the reality is that there is some ladder that we all drift towards so as to think, if I can just get up this ladder, maybe it's a, a ladder of vocation or relationship or pleasure, and you just think, man, if I, can, if I can get up higher than where I'm at, like then I'll be... Like, that's the wise way of doing it. And God says, no. You want to find me? I'm not at the top of the ladder. I'm at the bottom. If you want to find me, then you have to be willing to let all ladder climbing go. And if you will let go to whatever it is you're seeking for approval, pleasure, power, whatever it is, let go. Because if you get to the top of the ladder, you'll be sorely disappointed to realize that that's not where Jesus is. He's at the bottom. His whole life was evidence that Jesus would be found at the bottom of the ladder. And that's really good news for a people who can spend 85, 90, 100 years of this life and never reach the top. Jesus is not on a throne. He's on a cross. He's not in a temple. He's outside the city gates. He's not clothed in majestic robes. He's hanging naked. He's not wearing a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He's not surrounded by other worshipers. He's surrounded by mockers. He's not destroying his enemies. He's bleeding for them. Paul preached that God sent heaven's darling, to die a death that Caesar wouldn't allow any of the worst of Roman citizens to have to endure. And Paul said the reason for such a death is because it's what sin deserves. This message tells the good that they are really bad. It tells the rich that they are really poor. It tells the impressive that they are nothing. The word of the cross exposes the reality of our sinfulness and it shows us the judgment that we deserve. And that message is simply offensive to a people who think fulfillment can be found through success. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you, consider the way of the cross. What is it that you're hoping to gain 
on the ladder that you're on? And do you really think that you can get there? And what happens when you get there and you realize that God is not there? The Bible makes clear that he is at the bottom. He's for the lowly. So you're not impressive. You're in good company. You're kind of a nobody in society. Welcome to the club. And belonging to him, you're free from having to live as though you are somebody. I would just plead with you, would you turn from your sin? And would you trust in the work of Jesus? And Jesus alone as the only hope that you would ever be made right with this God. Like for the, for the good of your soul, I pray you would not waste this life thinking that you are about to grab something that will ever be elusive. Brings us to point number two. The demonstration of the foolish wisdom of the cross. The demonstration of the foolish wisdom of the cross. And so you saw the design, point one. The demonstration, point two. We see this in verses 26 through 28. Paul says, you want, you want, to, you want to have evidence for the message that I'm preaching? How do we know this message is true, Paul? Paul says, I'll give you proof. Look around. Remember what you were. You think God saved you because you were great? Look at, listen to what he says. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, and so there were some that were wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty. There were some that were mighty, not many noble. There were a few that were noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised things and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Paul explains how the church got filled with so many people who lacked earthly status. That God has so designed this message that it would be hope for the lowly. He knew the message would seem as though it was too below the somebodies. Consider just how far from the top of the ladder you were when God saved you. And Paul says, you want to know how you got to where you are today? It's because God chose you. When no one cared a bit about your story, when you yourself felt like you had such a far, a long way to go, when you felt like you would never amount to anything, like that's when God stepped in and God chose you. Their place on the ladder had no bearing on on his love for them. So that's good news for us who simply want to run to a ladder and think, man, if I can get higher and higher, then just maybe he will love me. Your place on the ladder has no bearing on how he loves you. And if that's true, then why in the world are you still trying to climb so hard? Like, why are you willing to sacrifice the things that are eternal to lay hold of the temporary? Why do you spend so much of your time comparing yourself to others? And why do the values of this world hold such a prominent place in your life? Like, God's message could have been only what the upper-class academics will support. God's message could have only been understood by the ablest in the world. 
It could have been a message about a victorious warrior, a strong political leader, but instead he chose a message that would seem foolish in order to destroy human pride. He chose the silliest message ever. That the very Christ would come down and be crucified as a common criminal. That's how much your God hates pride. He didn't design the message this way because he hates man. He designed the message this way because he hates pride. God chose people who were foolish and weak and low and despised to lay low the contrary. I love the story of Charles Spurgeon, his conversion. Charles Spurgeon was adrift at sea or adrift in a sea of depression and struggle. And he writes in his autobiography this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In the chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I heard of the primitive, primitive Methodist, how they sang so loudly that it made people's heads ache, but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved and if they could tell me. I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of the sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me. So the preacher began, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year in order to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking unto yourself, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. We have no business with, the, with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. And then the good man followed up his text and said, Look unto me. I'm a sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And Spurgeon then will go on to say, And the minister looked up, and he looked right at me and said, you look miserable in your sin. Look on to Jesus. How apt that one of the greatest minds in the world who could have been brought to salvation through so many worldly wise instruments found salvation through a stupid shoemaker who could barely string a sentence together. This is what the message of God has been doing from the days of the Corinthians to Spurgeon's day to even our day. Brings us to the third point. You saw the design of the foolish wisdom of the cross. You saw the demonstration of the foolish wisdom of the cross, and you saw, or and we see, the purpose 
of the foolish wisdom of the cross. Charlie said I should work to having another D. And so if you'd like, this is the purpose of the foolish <laughs> wisdom of the cross. Verses 29 through 31. Verses 29 through 31. By choosing individuals for salvation who lacked those things valued by the world, God had an aim. He wanted to shame those things in the world who think themselves, uh, those in the world who think themselves wise. He wanted to shame those in the world who think themselves strong and powerful. He wanted to shame those in the world who considered themselves to be somebody. Why did he do it? What was the purpose of it? He says in verse 29, to bring an end to human boasting. And so this morning, if you're a Christian, you can read this text, you consider your own calling, your own salvation, and you can think to yourself, like I'm among those who were not wise. I'm among those who were not strong. I was among those who were a nobody. For the most part, all throughout human history, salvation has come to the lowly. Why? He did it so that you might not even think that you could boast. This is staggering. God loves his people so much that he will not let us diminish his love for us by exalting over ourselves in his presence. God loves us so much that he will not let us ruin the glorious experience of being loved by him and turn that into a reason that you and I should boast in ourselves. Because of God's gracious choice and through his effectual call of the preaching of the gospel, God took you, if you are in Christ, and he placed you in union with his son so that through that union, by faith, you might receive salvation. It's God who by sheer gift raises the nothings to people who would be accepted and who would be accorded a status of being redeemed. I have been so pleasantly surprised as I've read through the first chapters of 1 Corinthians just to be reminded that the doctrine of God's sovereign grace is not just found in the book of Romans. It's all in 1 Corinthians. This is why Paul would say in verse 30, and because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Righteousness doesn't denote a level of moral achievement. It's God's acceptance of those who stand in the wisdom of the cross. Sanctification isn't a state of having some advanced moral maturity. No, it's the natural fruit and product of those who are near to God with the gospel at the center of their lives. Redemption isn't, Lord, deliver me so that I can do what I want. No, it's rescue from hostile forces to now I can belong to him. God has saved us. If you are in Christ, God has saved you and you brought very little earthly value to the table. And he did it by calling us through a message that is maddening folly to the world. And so verse 31, as it is written, if we're going to boast, we boast in the Lord. Boasting is not bad, covenant life. 
the right object of our boasting makes all the difference. Therefore, what the Corinthians needed to see and what we need to see, lest we find ourselves tempted to change the gospel message or God's word to make it more palatable to the world and to adjust to fit what they're telling us we we must preach and believe, what we must see is that God has designed this message that is foolishness to the world. He's designed it with specific aims. And if we think, no, 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 God, we can't, we can't go on speaking it because the world will mock us if we take this message to them, then just hear the Lord say this morning, my design is to call those, to call those that are wise in the world's sight. My design is to call them and bring them to a place where their only boast is in me. That's their only boast. Covenant Life, this is God's will for us this morning, that we would turn from boasting in self, that we wouldn't look for pleasure anymore in our wisdom, in our strength. We wouldn't demand signs, but we would look unto Jesus. And we would keep doing it until we can say with integrity what the hymn writer said. Lord, forbid it that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. And if we do that, let's just see what becomes of it. By becoming a church that says our only boast is in the Lord and what he's done. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we have heard your word, we've been reminded of the good design. We've seen a demonstration. And you've even given us insight to know why you've done it. God, we desire to be a church that remains faithful to this message. And we plead, even as we heard today in the baptism testimony, keep on using it to do what we can't. And so compel us forward with a renewed sense of trust in your message. Speak now to us in this moment of silence as we listen to how we ought to respond.